Today on Not Cleared, we have a news roundtable where we're joined by Adam Savitt, who is the center's China program coordinator, and Kyle Scheidler, who is the center's director for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism. And we talked to them about recent escalation by Iran in the Middle East. We also talk about the ongoing effects of the United States withdrawal from Afghanistan, the border crisis at the southern border, and we finish with a discussion of China's nuclear program. Okay, so Iran can't seem to stay out of the news headlines lately. They recently had a new president elected, and then these oil tankers were attacked off the coast of Oman by Iran. And then there were also attacks by Hezbollah, which is directly funded by Iran, on Israel last week. So why don't we just give a brief overview of what's going on over there? Well, I mean, to start off with, I think the thing that's perhaps most interesting is— the Iranians could not be saying in any more ways to the Biden administration that they're just not that into you. Uh, the Biden administration, which has put making a new Iran deal as front and center of everything in their foreign policy, uh, they've you know expressed a willingness to burn down their relationship uh, with the Saudis, with the Emiratis, with, with a whole host of Gulf allies in favor instead of getting this Iran deal. And Iran's response is basically YOLO. Uh, we're going to have every proxy in the region launch attacks. We're going to, uh, you know, hijack Israeli shipping. Uh, they're doing everything they can to just really rub it in the face of the Biden administration uh, that uh, Biden needs them a lot more than they need him. And I, I mean, I think it's really remarkable that the Biden administration is just sitting back and, and, and taking this uh it really insulting behavior by the Iranians. But. Well, two things. One, um, the new president, I think, is showing he's called the butcher of Tehran. And there's a lot of there's a lot of domestic unrest and the regime is struggling. So some of these attacks may be to distract. Um, but this this new guy, the Ayatollah, is, I guess, probably going to die soon. And so this new president will kind of ensure that his son is the next Ayatollah. Um, so it could just be that this new president is is much more hardline and radical, although it's always questionable how much power does the president actually have in Iran. Um, but the second thing, too, as to your point, Kyle, the whole premise of the Iran deal is that if we can normalize relations with Iran, if they can be brought into the international community, then they're no longer a threat, right? But the more that they try to do that, the more it disproves the idea that they want to be part of any international community. I mean, the fundamentals of the regime prevent them from being part of the international community. They're oriented completely differently. They have a religious orientation. It's not the same calculations. And like, you know, the the U.S. policymakers keep on pretending or wishful thinking that eventually realpolitik will will kick in and, um, you know, they'll they'll have the same interests as other nation states. But from everything I've read and, um, you know, analysts that, that know more than me, that that their economy has been more or less at the breaking point for decades, and it's really, really bad now. But they, as long as they can hang on to one thread of power, that's what they'll do. They will not compromise. And yeah, the the president and and uh, other trappings of um, civil government like that seem to be just that, just trappings and and just uh, cover for the Ayatollahs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the U.S. has never been good at really understanding revolutionary regimes. 
regimes that have, you know, absolutely no interest in following the regular quote-unquote rules of, you know, international relations. And, it you know, it's just so common for, you know, U.S. elites that, that come out of schools of foreign policy like Georgetown or whatever, that they have this just by-the-book approach, and they just insist that everybody plays the game the same way, uh, despite the fact that we have, you know, ample evidence, uh, you know, going all the way back to 1979, that the Iranians do not play the game the same way. They do not view international relations the same way we do. You know, for them, extortion, terrorism, blackmail, uh, hijacking, all of these things are legitimate plays uh, to achieve what they want on the world stage. And we just are not willing to address that reality that you, that you pointed to. Well, it's also, so these these foreign policy experts that come out of Ivy League schools and, and have all these political theories, it's based on, the, the international order of today is based on classic Western ideals, which are unique to human history throughout all of time, right? It's entirely an aberration. It's the exception to the rule. And they're assuming that everyone else, they have this understanding that it is the rule. That's the way things should work. It's this futuristic, utopian world of, you know, the League of Nations. Well, I guess that was the first um, version of that. But but it it doesn't ever change. They don't ever learn. And I guess my question is, um, well, A, why isn't Iran coming to the table? Because they do need sanctions relief. So why are they being so aggressive just to because they can? I think it would just ideologically, it would negate their entire ideology to, to bow down, like you're saying, just to the nation state system generally, and specifically to the United States as an antagonist for 40 years, you know. But they're not bowing down because the Biden administration has basically said, we'll give you anything you want. You can have everything. Mm-hmm. And they're still... Well, I think that's a legit question because Kyle talked about how indirectly, directly funding terrorism, whatever you want to look at, it, and then they're seizing these oil tankers, why would the U.S. be trying to get back into the JCPOA? Because anyone that looks at this objectively, they see basically this bad guy and the U.S. is trying to get back into business with them. Why are they trying to so desperately? I mean, that's our own dysfunction, which right. is that we, you know, or the dysfunction of our left, at least, where we want some sort of vague approval or points or, or you know, um, the visuals of a deal Um but without any actually substantive uh, uh, wins in, in that category, it's just the, you know, the, the having a signed deal, and that's the end in itself. Well, you know, the other problem that the Biden administration has is that when the Obama administration did a deal with Iran, they front-loaded all the goodies. So everything that the Iranians wanted, they got. Uh, and then everything that the West wanted uh, came later, if it came at all. And of course, we know uh, the Iranians began cheating on the deal almost immediately, uh, which was part of the logic of the Trump administration withdrawing from the deal, uh, in addition to the fact that it was not a good deal to begin with. So there's not a whole lot that the Iranians gain by going back into the deal as it stands. Except for sanctions relief. Yeah, but the, <laughs> the Biden administration is doing that anyway uh, to coax them to the table. Yeah. So they they are being given, and this is you know classic negotiations one hundred and one is that you never pay to sit down and talk. You right. never give somebody what they want just to start negotiations. 
uh, and this is something that they have, you know, in the Biden administration, they, they're giving away the farm in order to get the Iranians to come back. And the Iranians figure, I think, uh, as long as we hold out, they'll just give us more. And even if they don't end up rejoining the JCPOA, there's this piece from Bloomberg that talks about, says that U.S., quote, U.S. and European officials worry that the time is swiftly approaching when Iran's nuclear know-how will advance so far that any return to the JCPOA will be meaningless. So the Biden administration can be pushing for them to rejoin the JCPOA, but it would be kind of funny and ironic if Iran was like, no, we actually don't want to because we don't need it anymore. Well, I mean, I think the agree the original agreement wasn't really ever going to prevent them from getting a weapon to begin with. So. And was not intended to. Right. 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 So also from the Bloomberg article, there was this quote that says, now Iran is demanding relief from all sanctions and a U.S. promise, which Biden can't make, that his successor won't reimpose them. So Iran is essentially requesting that whoever the next president is, they also won't reimpose these sanctions, which is just ironic that they're trying to make a request as ridiculous as this to a future president that has not been named. Right, which is a, which is a, which is you know the, something that the Biden administration can't right. actually give in on, uh, which doesn't mean they won't try. I mean, the the Obama administration did a number of things to try to uh, make the original JCPOA sort of bound in stone and, and to prevent uh, a predis- a successor from from changing it. That didn't work, obviously, because you just can't really bind a future president or a future Congress that way. Unless you pass an actual treaty, that's, which, yeah. you know, maybe they, they, there would have well, never... Well, that's just out of the question. Right, there, there would not have been the support for it. But right. if you do things unilaterally, then it can be easily undone. Mm-hmm. Right, but that, that, you know, that's why they went to the UN with the original JCPOA. They were trying right. to create some framework uh, to behold in the U.S. to this... Uh, you know, treaty that wasn't a treaty without actually going through the constitutional process of approving a treaty, which they couldn't get done because, you know, there was enough members of Congress who didn't like the, the JCPOA for, you know, it would never pass. Including Democrats. Including Democrats. Wasn't Bob Menendez was the big one? Yeah. Yeah. And then the Obama administration um, investigated him for All right. <laughs> previous right. crimes. Yeah. And was that on Epstein Island or was it a very similar thing? Uh, it was like a Caribbean. It was a different thing, but it was very uh, gross. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, the, the extent to which the Obama administration played hardball in order to pass the JCPOA, well, not really pass because it didn't have to be approved, but in order to, to get it through uh, both in public opinion, um, I, mean, I mean, is really remarkable. I mean, you have reporting that this was the first example uh, that really was was published of uh, the Obama administration using the unmasking yeah. of American citizens in order to figure out uh, which congressmen were in conversation with Israeli officials about the Iran deal, um, and so that, so that they could use that um, to con- counteract um, opposition to the deal. You know, and we would later see that play again during the, the whole RussiaGate collusion story. Uh, you know, you had the Bob uh, Menendez thing, which you mentioned, where the, you know the DOJ came after him on on corruption charges and, and what have you, uh, because he was the main face of Democratic opposition to the JCPOA, which he seemingly was guilty of. His co-defendant, I think, had a plea deal. I can't remember the details. He didn't actually pay a price for it, I don't think. But the point is, Obama officials testified against him, and he was, I think, the senior most 
basically had a lot of sway within the Democratic Party on foreign policy, and he was going against the administration. Yeah, I'm sure he was guilty of it, just like I'm sure a lot of members of Congress are guilty of different things. But it was brought up strategically mm-hmm. at that moment, and then and the, yeah, and and the DOJ was sicked on him for a very specific political purpose. Yeah, I mean, I think we should, for the record, I don't think there was any you know uh, official uh, ruling on 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 the outcome of that. Uh, so technically, you know, not guilty, hmm. but. Uh, certainly, you know, it's a, it, it's an example of how uh, the, you know, the deliberate uh, focus on corruption of, of this or that member of Congress can be yeah. used uh, unscrupulously, I think. Thanks for that legal clarity. <laughs> <laughs> no, didn't he? Did he get primaried and then he won or something? I think it was something like that. He's still in or, the Senate, right? Yeah, yeah, no, he, yeah, he still is. And, uh, and as far as I know, has not been very vocal uh, about the Biden administration mm-hmm. uh, trying to get back into the JCPOA. I could be wrong about that, but but to the best of my knowledge, he hasn't been uh, the force that he was uh, against the JCPOA under the Obama administration until this this whole incident went down. Right. But I mean, I, I think you just you know you you look at an episode like that and it just convinces you, like this really is uh, a major major thing for for the you know the Biden administration and for for the the leading edges of the Democratic Party, this is a thing they want. Uh, they've made uh, the decision to have the Iranians play a major role in the, in the region, and they're not they're not going to be convinced by anything Iran does to change that view. All right. So just to go over what's been happening at the border, um, this is from a CBS news story that U.S. agents had 210,000 migrant apprehensions in July, numbers not seen since 2000, which June had been the previous record with 180,000 encounters, which includes, so encounters include apprehensions and expulsions. Um, can you, Kyle, can you, since you were at the border, can you explain what an apprehension is? Sure. So the situation we have down in the border right now is that uh, massive numbers of people are crossing the border uh, in family groups or in what they claim to be a family group. Uh, or from countries where they are going to claim asylum. Uh, and they, what happens is they cross the border, essentially, and they immediately turn themselves into the Border Patrol. And the Border Patrol then has to deal with, uh, you know, how they're going to handle that. Uh, and right now, essentially what they do is they process these people. They give them a notice to appear uh, at some future date, if that, and then they turn them loose. So when it says apprehension, you need to realize that doesn't mean people who are being sent back to where they came from. It means in large part people who will be staying here. Right. So in June, there were 180,000 encounters. And and at this point, 58% of those encounters resulted in expulsion due to Title 42, which is designed to stop the spread of COVID, which was spreading rampantly through these detention centers. Um, so the fact that there were 210,000 apprehensions, which is not including the encounters in just July, is a huge uptick. Biden is going to continue the Title 42 expulsions and um, the migrants from countries other than Mexico and the, the Northern Triangle have also increased in, in recent months. A quarter of all June encounters were from different countries, up from 9% in May 2019. So I clearly, I think everyone in the world is aware that the border is open. It's wide open. Yeah. yeah. Um, the only group that is not 
that is totally exempt from Title 42 is unaccompanied minors, and most migrant families are not being sent back. This is extreme. It sounds like it is a compassionate policy, but it's extremely problematic because it's, especially with the families, because it's allowing, it's having the effect of people sending their kids unaccompanied with coyotes and dangerous people to be trafficked, essentially, um, and to use kids to pose as a family to seek asylum. This is a big issue. A lot of those kids that are um, used to be in a family are either killed, I mean, or other or sold after the fact. So what do we do about this guy? So the first thing I think we need to understand when we're talking about the people crossing the border is uh, everybody who crosses the border pays. Everybody who crosses the border pays a cartel in order to cross. Right. Nobody crosses for free. Sometimes multiple times, because what can you do if the cartel says you have to pay us again? What are you going to do? So you have uh, the family groups and the uh, people who are going to try to seek asylum who are coming from everywhere. I mean, when I was down in the border at Del Rio, Texas, we met uh, Haitians, people coming from West Africa, people coming from Venezuela, uh, not all of whom are poor. Uh, you know, especially people fleeing from Venezuela often are middle class and have quite a bit of money. Uh, but those people are going to essentially be let in and they're going to go anywhere in the country they want. Now, if you're a single male um, you're in, and, and you're from this northern triangle region, you know, Honduras, Guatemala uh, or Mexico, you're going to get sent back under Title 42. So what happens is those uh, groups uh, are smuggled across either in areas that are hard for the Border Patrol to reach or uh, when the Border Patrol isn't paying attention uh, because they're dealing with these other things. So you have these large groups of you know military-aged males that are crossing uh, in r- relatively desolate areas, uh, overwhelming you know ranch- ranches and farms, uh, and trafficking through the desert. Um, you know, we're now seeing it's now the hottest p- p- part of the year down there. Typically, they see numbers go down during this period, and the numbers have gone up. So that means that we can expect as things cool down, it's going to get even worse. Uh, but we need to be realizing that even if the people crossing the border are not ultimately, you know, not everybody crossing the border is a terrorist or a cartel member or something like that. And I, I think we need to keep that in mind. But everybody who crosses the border has paid a cartel to cross. And so you are now dealing with these criminal enterprises that are making tens and millions of dollars a day. Billions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they're not going to let anything stop them from making that money. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's an important thing to, to pay attention to as well. Is it's the, the, the negative impact is not just dealing with the situation. It's dealing with these organizations that are being created and are becoming incredibly powerful and are, are going to undermine, you know, the Mexican government and create a number of other challenges for us down the road uh, because we've empowered them in this way. And also exploiting desperate people. Sure, yeah. But I think that's often lost in that, pe- in, especially with Biden, his whole approach has been, I'm compassionate, I feel sorry for these people, you know, we have to let them in, but in reality... I mean, you talk to people down there, and every single one of them you talk to says, I came because Biden said I could come in. Right. And, you know, I have a friend, uh, Todd Benzman at the Center for Immigration Studies, and 
he's gone down to you know the Darien Gap, which is the little place where uh, people cross from South into Central America to make their way up. And he says, you know, there were migrants telling him stories of seeing dead bodies in the ditch, uh, children, women, you know, people who tried to make this journey and and slowed the group down or whatever, and they just got left. Uh, so, you know, the notion that, that encouraging these people to come is compassionate is, is the furthest thing from the truth. There are people who are being horribly mistreated by cartel members. There are people that are being killed. There are people being raped, and they're willing to you know, pay tens of thousands of dollars of their own money to endure all of this and then come uh, because they think Biden is going to let them in. So do you think that's the main reason for this surge at the border is specifically the language that the Biden administration has been using? A hundred percent. I mean, it's not and not just the language It's not just what they say. Uh, it's it's the way they process things. And, and because everybody knows uh, they're never going to have to appear uh, they're, you know, they're just going to live illegally. And their expectation is that somewhere down the line, they'll get an amnesty, which is not unreasonable. So which just is not unreasonable today, given what the Biden administration has said. President Biden, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader, Majority, Minority. I don't majority. know. Majority. Majority. Sure. Leader, yeah. yeah. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer are trying to pass immigration reform through budget reconciliation. So just to recap, because this is a boring um process to pass any bill typically you need 60 votes in the senate which is a filibuster proof majority a simple majority of the house and the president has to sign the bill budget reconciliation doesn't require 60 votes just as a simple majority of the senate so 51 but it has to be directly related to taxes and spending so it's been used 12 times to pass other legislation since 1980 Um, and the democrats are now saying well the only way we're going to get any kind of immigration reform is if we do it through reconciliation. This is a common trend of Democrats saying, well, everything is too gridlocked and divided, so we have to do this in a way that circumvents the rules because there's too much opposition to it. But again, any kind of pathway to citizenship will most likely just make these numbers go up, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, if it's even possible for us to, you know, for these numbers to go up, they will continue to go up. It was another important uh, policy, or maybe the most important one, is the the, uh, the third country policy, or the fact that we we would uh, repatriate, or not, it wasn't their country, but we we would uh, put folks back into Mexico, right? Yeah, the uh, remain in Mexico policy right. that the Trump administration put into place. Right, so there's, there's very tangible things you can do. You know, this, uh, there, there's, a, there's an article by Politico uh, today which... Um, you know, comments that Guatemala is key to Biden's uh, migrant policy and corruption is the main problem with getting things done in, in that regard. But uh, perhaps, you know, yeah, the, Guatemala is a main uh, source of the immigration as the other triangle countries. Um, but, you know, we've we've known that they've been uh, corrupt for a while. That's like kind of an endemic feature. Like that's not these supposed root causes. You know, there, there's something if when you're president and you have the the um, the reins of the government, you can start doing things in the United States or on the border. That's where your agency is. Right. Uh, why are we trying to prod these, you know, third world leaders who are by definition corrupt to do something they've never done anything about it in the past? Why? Why so, do you think they? Well, will? interestingly enough, okay. One. Wait, the, can I just like go over explain that really quick? Okay, right. go ahead. So just to explain the root cause strategy that the Biden administration has put forward, there's five pillars. The first is addressing economic insecurity and inequality. The second is combating corruption. 
um, strengthening democratic governance and advancing rule of law. The third is promoting respect for human rights, labor rights, and a free press. The fourth is countering and preventing violence, extortion, and other crimes perpetuated by criminal gangs, trafficking networks, and other organized criminal organizations. And the fifth is combating sexual, gender-based, and domestic violence. So the fourth priority is combating violence from criminal gangs and trafficking. The first three are all about addressing corruption and strengthening democracy in the Northern Triangle countries, which are Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. This is a $4 billion plan. And we give these countries millions of dollars every year. So Kamala Harris visited Guatemala in June and the president agreed that they were gonna fight corruption. Now, Guatemala's attorney general fired what Politico calls the top anti-corruption prosecutor, who is now in, in Washington and meeting with several Biden officials. So the point is, well, who decides what corruption is, right? And um, I just wanna focus on one quote where, this is from the political article. We're going with a full society kind of response. So there will be times where we can't work with these governments and that's okay. We'll work with civil society. We will work with the private sector an administration official said. That's insane that we are working. Who, so first here's of all, what you should hear when they say they're concerned with the corruption in Guatemala. What you should hear them saying is we are going to overthrow the government of Guatemala. <laughs> this is what they have been trying to do now for a better part of a decade. You know, the current Wait, Guatemala. Wait, define who they are. Uh, they would be elements of the left, elements of the Obama administration, and now elements of the Biden administration. The Guatemalan government was actually very friendly to President Trump. Uh, was actually working with us on border security issues. Um, and they have been desperate because uh, elements of the State Department, together with various NGOs you know, that receive Soros funding and the like, have been pushing this corruption campaign uh, to trying to unseat the Guatemalan government. Um, it's, it's a complicated story. You know, I, I, there's a good article in, uh, in Fox News by a guy named Stephen Heck about it. It's called Democrats are Destabilizing, Destabilizing Guatemala for Political Gain. I'd encourage people to check it out. Uh, but they have been trying to do this now for, for uh, you know, for several years where they've been pushing, uh, you know, socialists, uh, to try to undermine the elected Guatemalan government. And, it's, and it just goes to show you how absolutely blatant they are. Where it's, you know, we have a problem on our border, and their solution is going to be to push this uh, change of government in Guatemala, which they have been pushing. That's what I was going to say. Anyway. Why, why are they possibly, or how could they possibly think that this is the right way to handle this I crisis mean, at all? The, it's the most complicated solution possible. We're going to fix a government that we don't know the culture or we basically have no sway there and we're going to go and fix all of their domestic problems so let's let's look at some examples in the middle east which i think we'll talk about right? later but the hub- it doesn't really work oh well that the worked. hubris of that is really telling that instead of addressing our border and what we can control in our own country we're going to go and fix other countries there's two other layers which would be one what we can do on our own border that's the main thing and trump proved that he can affect the behavior of of people and they, and they don't come in as much and Kyle has more depth of knowledge on these regimes, but I can just say generally observing Mexico, the return to Mexico policy, and also, unless I'm mistaken, Mexico had a 
a security presence on its southern border that prevented a lot of Central Americans from coming in, and that was a real thing. And that, and so whatever the regime is in these countries, they have they can be incentivized or otherwise, you know, um, carrot or stick, whatever you want to call it. Work with the regime in power and on some pragmatic steps. That's the solution. Yeah, yeah I mean, so Mexico didn't didn't want all of these people remaining in Mexico. Uh, which was the, the Trump administration's position. So they, they said, okay, well, we'll enforce the border and we'll try to keep people from coming in. Um, but it's also interesting to compare that to, the, to their handling of Iran because, so last week, the State Department announced new visa restrictions that'll allow us to block current and former Guatemalan officials that we, the State Department deems corrupt from coming to the United States. Compare that to the way that they're bending over backwards for, I mean, I don't, admittedly know too much about um, some of these regimes. I doubt that they're as barbaric as the Iranians, um, but it's just, it's the hypocrisy. It's like there's some sort of mystical list or something they get where these are the countries that it's just impossible. It's impossible. It's kind of like the Soviet Union back in the day. You know, it was sort of like, well, there's no way we can. It, they'll never fall, and there's no way we can ever, you know, detente forever for decades. And there, but yet there's other ones where the priority and the goal and real resources are put behind toppling them. Apparently, why? You know, it's just. I mean, it, it seems to me that uh, if you look at their behavior vis-a-vis Guatemala. Uh, it's uh, non-socialist governments. Uh, it's 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 conservative governments. Uh, right. The Guatemalan government worked very well with Trump. Uh, they, uh, when we moved our embassy to Israel, they said that they wanted to do the same. Um, and, and and so our you know the response from uh, the State Department is basically to to try to undermine them at every step. I, I would not to get too far afield, but I would say it's it, non-socialist. That's a good way to divide it up. But basically, not. To, I'm just going to put out there. You know, any uh, anti-American government, they'll boost. It seems that way. Why? What? What in Iran? You know, both. You can argue both Iran and Saudi Arabia, for example, both have horrifically problematic moral and political. You know, things going on. Why do they favor Iran? It, it's just. Because they are arrayed against the United States, I can't think of another reason. No, I, I mean I think you're right. It, it's the uh, the most dangerous place to be is is America's friend. Yes, but I would I would say that the way they would probably describe it is well, it's a it, Iran is the way it is because of American intervention in the Middle East, sure. or they would say basically it's been the United States' fault for these sure. regimes that have gained power, and so we have to help them. It's some. Um, they have that narrative about yeah. Central America, the Banana Republic, right. and et cetera, that AOC speaks about. But. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, it, it is it's. I am always on guard whenever I hear now uh, this corruption narrative, mm-hmm. uh, because you know obviously it's true that corruption is endemic in, in a lot of places, but you just see again and again uh, that this drum starts to get beat. Uh, when they have a problem with some particular, um, you know, conservative or non-socialist government, or that's not playing the way they want to play the game, and uh, as you know, as as you said, Adam, like for actual rogue regimes, for rogue regimes that are actually dangerous, that actually cause problems, uh, they have an open door policy. And there are two phrases that constantly come up: anti-democratic values, corruption, I guess three, and rule of law. And when you see how those are applied domestically, that the voter laws in states in, um, what was the state? 
Georgia? Yeah, the Georgia voting laws are are Jim Crow-esque, as President Biden said several times, when they were more, um, they were less restrictive than the current laws in Delaware. Right. I mean, if those it's hard laws to take were it being seriously. implemented in Guatemala, uh, ostensibly the Biden administration would say that's good progress on on corruption. <laughs> Right. It would depend on who was implementing them and why. <laughs> right. I mean, I think this is. I mean, this is important to understand. I mean, if you go back like this past week, you know, there's been a huge push in the news uh, to denigrate Hungary, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of that was because Fox News's Tucker Carlson was over there and was interviewing Viktor Orban and, and all of that stuff. And you you saw the same kind of news trotted out that the Orban government is corrupt, the Orban government is anti-democratic, um, and, 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 you know... Don't forget white supremacists. And, yeah, and of course, um, it, it's every negative pejorative that you can come up with. And why? And it's because he doesn't want to dance to their tune. Well, the EU um, condemned Hungary. I think they threatened sanctions against... Hungary for their anti-LGBT bill or whatever. Um, meanwhile, they sent an envoy to the inauguration of the new president of Iran. Mm-hmm. So there's a smiling EU um, envoy sitting next to terrorists, giving them... Terrorists, too, if you want to go on the LGBT matter, don't really care for no that either. No kidding, yeah. I, I mean, that are he, smiling for photos and legitimizing this new regime that, by the way, was not elected democratically. The, the Hungary parallel too is the, is the one of the big still uh, there's many cultural reasons the the EU and the Western um, Europeans don't like them but uh, one major lingering one is the migrant crisis quote unquote in 2015 where they were actually effective at putting up a border wall <laughs> and uh, more like a fence and also just was uh, enforced uh, properly and and yeah and it was a deterrent and it worked they're so. also pro Israel well that too yeah which, exactly. which didn't earn them any favors either from the EU or from you know the US State Department and and the like. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think it's absolutely fascinating to sit back and look at some of the decisions that are being made about this country or that country, and and the, and the narratives that get pushed for you know you know Guatemala is corrupt and and bad, and Hungary is anti uh, LGBT, uh, but we're going to ignore you know Iranian smuggling weapons and hanging gay people, uh, and, and we're going to give yeah, throwing yeah. them off roofs, and we're going to give them billions of dollars instead. So I want to switch gears slightly, but still staying on the border crisis. What happens with migrants that are coming and they test positive for COVID? Because we still have that going on in the United States, and there's thousands and hundreds of thousands of people they get flooding in. anywhere in the country they want to go. They, I don't. Are they even testing? Uh, I mean, I know that uh, local officials in McAllen, Texas, this last week said something like a hundred percent of. Um, border crossers were, 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 were testing positive yeah, for they COVID. Said more than 7,000 migrants who tested positive for COVID, COVID have been processed since February, including more than 1,500 just this past week. And I, I mean, and they're being put on planes with no uh, IDs. You know, they don't have a, a lot. Of, they don't have to show an ID like you or I do to get on a plane. They'll just have whatever package of materials the border patrol gave them. Uh, and then you know, and then they're they're on a, they're on a plane. Are you know. they paying for those tickets, or is the government? It depends. Uh, sometimes they have the money to pay. Uh, sometimes some some sort of NGO is covering the costs, and it, it really depends. A lot of them are not are not broke. Uh, they've they've you know devoted their entire life savings to this this effort, so they they can they can pay for bus tickets and train and tickets. I know it, I know it's a joke. So. It's like oh, why are all these people come to the United States if we're so terrible and mean and racist and everything? But when you hear 
the treatment that we're giving these people for coming here illegally, it's like, why wouldn't you yeah. come here? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, you have to put up with less COVID nonsense uh, illegally crossing the border uh, than you do than you do to come to work in a you know in a fast food restaurant or something. So I know the Biden administration is going to be vaccinating people at the border, or at least that was reported this week. Oh, that'll be interesting. Yeah, uh, I wonder if people can refuse I, and I if that's see, allowed. Yeah, right. I did see that, but then that's kind of a dead letter. By the time they're in, it, it takes a while for the vaccine to take effect. So they're already in, and, and they've already brought it in. And you I can't. And, and, and how are you going to follow up to jab them again? Oh, right. <laughs> That'll be interesting, though, if they force people to be vaccinated mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. I can't. I. I can't imagine they will. I can't. Yeah, they'll uh, they'll force the you know the U.S. military to get vaccinated, but right. I doubt they will force you know illegal immigrants to get. Well, this is just another instance that, that's been the case in many different spheres since the advent of COVID, where science, capital S, the science, you know, is just completely dependent on political factors from, you know, the George Floyd protests were not super spreader events. The Obama wedding, uh, 60th birthday that just happened isn't a super spreader event. And, you know, the Sturgis motorcycle rally is, is correct. Yeah. There's no what was it's like the Oracle of Delphi, you know, and it, the Greeks would it would just tell them things. And it's like mm. the science. It just depends oh. <laughs> on how it shapes out. Right. I'm not familiar. I know the, that name, but I don't know that, that was that somewhat random because this actually does have a ruling. Uh, this does have a logic to it. It's just a perverse non-scientific logic. <laughs> it's just a political logic. I guess that's true. I guess. It, yeah. Either way, someone declares, quote, like capital sure. T, the science. Sure. Big then, science. Yeah. In other news, we are withdrawing from Afghanistan on September 11th this year, so just over a month away. But why would we pick that well date? Ahead of, we withdrew how well is, ahead of it. How was that date decided? How could it, it ever frame like, up well? The optics were never going to be good. It's was just, that something that the Taliban was like forced? I don't that, know. I, th- I think they are dumb enough uh, in the Biden administration press office. They are dumb enough to believe that this would have somehow appeared like an awesome thing. Like, mission, probably, accomplished. Yeah. Mission, accompli- yeah. mission accomplished on Just, the 20th anniversary yeah, 20 of 9-11, and we've gotten out of Afghanistan. Like that's, like, You're all welcome. Like you take your wife to a nice date for your fifth anniversary of like getting married. You don't do something like this on the anniversary of like the most deadly terrorist attack <laughs> in the United States darling, ever. And also from Afghanistan. Yeah. No. I, As if twenty being there for 20 years is any kind of accomplishment. Uh, you know, and look at what Biden, they asked Biden about this, right? They said, you know, are you concerned that the Taliban's not going to keep their word? Uh, and he said, no, but, you know, I'm confident that the Afghan military and the Afghan government that we've built over 20 years will, you know, be effective and blah, blah, blah. And, of course, they're falling apart like right. wet paper mache, uh, which everybody knew that they would. Right. Um, and, and they, you know, like you said, we spent 20 years and countless of billions of dollars building up an Afghan milita- military that folded like a card table. To, but Biden said that they were more competent. How could they have folded? <laughs> more well, more our, competent our, than whom? Our colleague John Rosamondo just wrote an article about the U.S. military and how it compared it to France in 1940, which, you know, and the vulnerabilities there. I mean, the key is if you don't have morale and you don't have a mission, and clearly in Afghanistan it's even more um, 
uh, acute because they just don't even have a nation in the way we think about it. So what is that? What is that force fighting for? I guess except the paychecks they had, and who cares what equipment they have or what training they have? It doesn't matter. Well, again, it goes to the hubris of foreign policy elite who thought that they could go in and change thousands of years of tribal culture and religion and ideology that we don't even fully understand. And we've spent, I mean, not only were we training their military, we were building up their infrastructure. Our troops would go and build, you know, roads and bridges that would get blown up and then they'd come back and do it again the next day. Um, The forces that we tried to train frequently would turn and shoot our soldiers. Kyle, can you speak more to that? Yeah, no, I mean, that that happened repeatedly. uh, And the, the U.S. government essentially would cover it up. They would... Uh, you know, try to frame them as as Taliban Taliban attacks when in fact they were, you know, Afghan military uh, turning on our own soldiers and firing on them for some sort of perceived cultural offense uh, or religious offense. And and you know, and so this is the Afghan military that we think is going to stand up to the Taliban and to the idea that we were going to force upon Afghanistan a NATO-style military that is totally dependent on high-tech toys and high-quality communications and air support uh, was never realistic. You know, there. You know, when you look at what we did successfully in Afghanistan in the days after 9/11, right, where we went in there with special forces, we cut deals with a variety of different tribal and ethnic groups and warlords, uh, and therefore, and we, you know, worked with their forces to to push out the Taliban. And we're very successful at that. Why? Because we took a appropriate sort of cultural approach, recognizing what uh, you know what was possible in Afghanistan and what was not possible, and and it worked. And then we turned around and said, okay, now we're going to make Afghanistan exactly like everywhere else in the world, and they're going to have to have a military just like everywhere else in the world uh, that's modern and has you know we're we're sending Afghan pilots over here to come fly F-18s. You know, I mean. None of that was ever realistic. To try to be fair, although you know it's just incredibly easy to, to um, criticize, but but it would have taken an incredible amount of vision to, you know, not build a traditional nation state to somehow have this like, you know, um, compromise between those tribal powers. I mean, and somehow and somehow still devise a way to withdraw, even if it was a relatively smaller footprint, and withdraw in some kind of respectable way. Um, there was no real, I mean, but I think there was no, there was never going to be a good ending to it. But I, I do think the initial attack and the routing out of Al-Qaeda was uh, necessary. But No, I, I agree with you. And, and uh, you know, I really blame the, you know, the Colin Powell concept of you broke it, you bought it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this was the, this was a statement that he had made, uh, I think. What did it, we break, though? As it related to, Af- yeah, Iraq. But what did we break in Afghanistan? You know, we, attacked we had for, no, we yeah. had, we had, uh, we retaliated against the Taliban for supporting Al Qaeda and for hosting Al Qaeda when they planned the attack. Uh, we did that successfully, uh, and you know, why should we be on the hook to build a 21st century society in right. Afghanistan? They attacked us. What this? Yeah. What was the calculus? Because they attacked us, and what we should have done, in my opinion, is make it clear that anyone that harbors terrorists or anyone that attacks the united states will die and will will pay for that right um to deter future threats what how did that shift to we have to rebuild the country 
Well, again, devil's advocate, but we did, yeah, we had a relatively light footprint and we were doing the air power, but, but we did fund and empower the Northern Alliance and other warlords, you know, that then did hold political power. So it's like, in a way, we, it was regime change it, to the extent there was a regime. But I mean, we worked with the Northern Alliance, which was which was largely uh, ethnic groups that are not the majority Pashtun. And then we turned around and said, you guys don't get to be in charge. We're going to put we're going right. to put these other guys in charge. Right. So we, we sort of undercut them as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the very military force that we had worked with to, to mm-hmm. take Afghanistan, we then turned around and said, no, we're going to build we're going to build something else here, which I think was a was a, you know, is it probably true that the Northern Alliance could have never held uh, Afghanistan? Sure, I think so. I mean, if they could have, they would have done that well before. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we're on the hook for the outcome. And I think we have to get out of this mindset that uh, we can't defend ourselves without, you know, transforming, you know, the people that attacked us into the brightest and best democracy in the in the region. Partly because it's impossible and we have yet to be successful in any case. Have, have any of you guys read a book called uh, The Mouse That Roars? No. Mm. It's a great book. It's very funny. It's worth reading. Uh, but it is all about this tiny country in Europe that's like super backwards and they only have bows and arrows uh, and they like make like one type of wine or something. And anyway, their economy is going in the tank. And so they decide, what, do you, what, what does a country do if their economy is going in the tank and how do you turn that around? And they said, oh, well, we'll declare war on the United States. And, mm-hmm. and <laughs> <laughs> we'll declare war on the United States. The United States will invade us and then uh, they'll build us back up. And uh, establish a good economy, and uh, and we can make lots of money. And so they they have this whole plan to, inv- to attack the United States and lose. And the irony, of course, is that they end up winning. And then you know it becomes very funny. But uh, I, I often think about that book when I think about these situations because yeah, the U.S. gets our we get ourselves in these situations where we feel just totally obligated. Uh, to, to to these places, and and we just can't fulfill the these obligations that we put so, on ourselves because that's a conundrum is that people say oh the u.s sees this going on we should be um going over there and trying to help them but also there's people that are like the u.s can't be the world's police force so where is there a happy medium that we can strike yeah that's a good question i mean uh our senior fellow here at the center dahlia alakiti had a really interesting and compelling article about afghanistan you know she's coming at it from a you know from an Arab American woman and and saying you know the things that are going to go on when the Taliban takes power in Afghanistan are horrific and that's one thousand percent true. Uh, but but we haven't you know we've been there twenty years and we haven't successfully prevented that so I don't know what the answer is. It comes to a bigger philosophical question, which is the, the and, and you know this is similar to the immigration question as well, which is that there's suffering everywhere. Every you know there's all yeah. sorts of countries having wars and people being slaughtered and uh, women being abused and all this. And you know it, it, it is like it, it depends what we're focusing on at that moment. We're darting from one thing to another, and then the cameras are here, and it looks like that abuse is the most important, and and support is ginned up for the you know it's just you know there, there's conflicts in Africa where hundreds of thousands of people are dying. Um, it's just we just simply can't get involved in any. So the metric has to be our interest. Well, I think it yeah philosophically it goes back to the social contract theory where citizens have their own unalienable rights they give it to the government and the government has to defend its own citizens interests where we've kind of gone off into this idea of international utopia that we can fix the entire world and that instead of 
understanding that there's always because human beings are flawed and the and there's always going to be conflict in the world that at some point there's this future where there is no conflict right and i think we're squeamish about standing up for our own interests and instead we try to take this holistic approach to being on every side possible and we screw it's that seems more damaging than us just defending our own interests but if it's, we have we have it all the important we have the close the things nearest to us completely out of focus and it's too simplistic to say well well we don't have enough jobs here and we have infrastructure here to take care of it's not quite that like zero sum game or whatever but like the basics the border is such a it is a national security and economic and it's just right. like it's key to our daily lives like why can we not focus on that but also the people of afghanistan arguably don't want democracy and don't want sure. what we were trying to give them as this we saw it as this benevolent thing we were doing and they had no interest yeah i mean you were talking about the the international the, the projection of the responsibility to protect a, a country's citizens upon this international framework and you know that takes me back to like the libya invasion right where you had the, the claim that the U.S. and the Europeans were making was that we have a responsibility to protect the Libyan citizens. It's like, well, no, uh, the government of Libya has a responsibility to protect uh, the Libyan citizens. We have a responsibility not to interfere with the sovereignty of Libyans. Which, by the way, is the whole framework of all international relations, is the idea that we don't infringe on other states' sovereignty. Otherwise it's impossible to have a starting point, right? Right, then everything falls apart. And you see what we're seeing now, right, which is that countries are, you know, going around interfering with each other and, and um, you know, countries will look at us and say, well, you're promoting this agenda, you're promoting that agenda. And we turn around and, and look at the Chinese and saying, you're meddling with this. And, and, and they'll laugh at us and, you know, accuse of us of, you know, oppressing our African-American citizens or whatever. That's you know that's what is led. That's what you you're led to when you don't have a, an international system that recognizes that uh, governments are responsible for their citizens and governments are responsible for their conduct with other governments. It's like the the quote of you can't have a healthy relationship until you're happy with yourself. That's <laughs> very happy, and it's like I feel like that's very applicable here because we have all this stuff going on at our southern border. If we can't take care of the stuff happening here domestically, how are we going to make any substantial changes outside of the U.S.? Right. And we, I mean, we get this a lot because, you know, at, immediately after 9-11, there was the, the, you know, let's fight them there so we don't have to fight them here. And now I think a lot of Americans are looking at this situation and saying, well, hold on just a second. Like, why do we have to let them come here to fight us? What if we just mm -hmm. didn't let them in? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, what if we what if we controlled our border? What if we vetted people uh, that were trying to come in the country to figure out whether they wanted to do us harm? Uh, wouldn't that be a reasonable starting point for national security? And then if you had a situation where that wasn't working because, say, a foreign government was helping terrorists transport across your border, well, then you would have a way to respond. Then you would respond to that, and rightfully so. Uh, but this notion that you're going to go abroad and slay terrorists and disrupt terrorist uh, training camps and the like, all of which are not a negative thing. I mean, they, they can be very necessary. But that you're going to do that and not secure the border 
is just illogical. And I think a lot of people started to realize, well, hold on just a second. I don't see how this solves our problem. So in the end of June, 120 ICBM, um, basically missile silos, were found by commercial satellites in China, in Gansu province. And then at the end of July, another 110 silos were found in, um, how do you say that province? Xinjiang. Xinjiang. Xinjiang, yeah, Um, near the concentration camps. So this is a big deal because China, there's something called the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which includes China, Russia, France, the US, and the UK. And these are the five nations that are recognized as having nuclear weapons. India, Pakistan, and Israel all also have weapons, but they are not recognized. Um, And North Korea. Yes, North Korea as as well. Uh, So the US and Russia have had treaties which require which, by the way, the Russians have always cheated on, but it requires on-site inspections and disclosure of, of forces and, and those kinds of things. And China has always been the most secretive about their program. They claim to have just a minimum deterrent of a couple hundred weapons, which um, we've basically just taken their word for it. So these new silos would kind of decimate that idea that they have just a minimum deterrent, right? And so, so far, the Biden administration hasn't said much about it until this week. Um, Secretary of State Blinken said in a meeting with Southeast Asian countries that um, he said, well, in a press release, the secretary also noted deep concern with the rapid growth of the PRC's nuclear arsenal, which is pretty um, minimal in terms of response to something like this. There's a new story in the South China Morning Post, which is a Hong Kong newspaper that's owned by Alibaba, which is basically, it's kind of a mouthpiece for China. And this this story goes into how researchers in China are developing um, these special satellites that can absorb radar. So basically, if they were to launch a missile at us, they would need satellites to guide that missile to our ship or wherever they were trying to destroy. And if we, we have ability to take out their satellite, which would then make it so the missile couldn't reach the target. They're designing new new satellites that would be immune to our ability. And they're also um, developing hypersonic glide vehicles that would get past US missile defense. So what's important to note here is that all of these things are designed to be seen. The Chinese are, are, are this is a deliberate message because there's, um, in 2008 or 2009, Philip Carber, a professor at Georgetown and former Pentagon official, found 3,000 miles of underground tunnels that are dug by this Second Artillery Corps, which is a secretive branch of the Chinese military responsible for nuclear weapons. So they have these underground tunnels where they're able to conduct tests and um, basically make it so we don't have any concept of their their nuclear abilities. So given that they have that, they're they're putting silos where satellite where commercial satellites can pick them up. Um, what do you think they're trying to convey? I mean, they're trying to convey that they have a real uh, uh, substantial deterrent, maybe, but also it's been theorized mainly by people who are a little more appeasement-minded that the silos uh, could be a decoy or could be, uh, they could fill half of them or, or even a small fraction of them, and it, it, it um, requires us to have contingencies where we, we need to take out all of them as if they're all full. Um, but yeah, you know, recent uh, reporting seems to think that the two to three hundred nuclear weapon 
uh, number is grossly underestimated. And, and uh, that, uh, you know, one an analyst said that uh, the current uh, U.S. military planners are simply naive or just not, um, you know, they're just not read up on, on this. And that China has uh, material to make up to 3,3500 weapons. That doesn't mean they made all of those, but it does mean that the last time they've been saying two or 300 uh, for decades, you know, it's a little like our, our illegal immigrants are always at 11 million for, <laughs> for decades, right. but um, it just doesn't make any sense that they would have uh, uh, so few. Um, but as far as the, uh, the radar absorbing satellites, um, you know, that's a great example that, that China still does have the luxury in a way of being an asymmetrical player, although being a, an economic and military, uh, you know, Titan as well. But all they need to do is negate the advantage. One of the huge advantages we have an aircraft carrier, for example, which is a floating platform of dozens of, uh, of weapons platforms, which gives us a huge advantage. And if they have a credible missile threat against that, that could be enough to keep our uh, carriers away from their coast. Um, and if they have enough of these satellites to make sure some of those go through or credibly have them go through, then that's enough for a major advantage. Just just going back to the 3,000 miles, kilometers, whatever, of underground tunnels that they have, I mean, you'd have to be pretty naive to think that they only have a couple hundred under there. I mean, ICBMs do not get claustrophobic. Like, they're not going <laughs> to they're not gonna have this vast underground Great Wall of China, as it's been called, and just only have a handful of missiles under there. And that's the argument for the nuclear silos, that the nuclear silos are, are actually going to be filled out, because our senior fellow, Peter Pryor, makes the point, like those are pretty expensive, <laughs> even for a country like right. China. Like, and it's a pretty, it's a pretty big project, and a, and a pretty, and and it's obvious again to those who are observing. So they, they probably are are going to stock those up. I, same with the tunnels; right. it's and very it's also, expensive. We have the ability to see, like with North Korea, for example. It's really hard to disguise missile tests, um, but with well, I don't think you could hide a missile test in a tunnel, but um, you could probably hide a low yield nuclear weapons test right. in, in these tunnels. So we have no real insight into what their program is other than what they're telling us. Um, but also, I think it's interesting that they are designing things to overcome our current systems, assuming that our current systems are capable and modernized, which they are not. We did a podcast with Frank talking about the state of our nuclear deterrent, which is um, pretty desperate and shocking. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're um, again. It's like it's like they just have to win once, or they just have to have one go, one missile or one drone go through. They do, you know, they have a swarming strategy, which is they they have enough. Again, the the aircraft carrier is like the, you know, the symbolic and practical center of our uh, naval and air uh, projection. And if they um, send enough missiles its direction enough, then some will get through. And like we just don't have that uh, capability yet. They're, they're debating, um, the military is debating whether to put more, they're, they're sort of almost giving up on the, on the uh, concept that we'll have enough coverage of missile defense uh, uh, for a whole theater like the Pacific. Um, and they're, they're thinking of more uh, localized measures that like a city or a, uh, a ship uh, could do at least has a chance of knocking these things out because they're, uh, there's just going to be too many coming in. Which, by the way, our missile defense, we have very limited defense in Alaska, and it's really designed for like an ICBM from North Korea, which is not right. near the sophistication of something from China or Russia. So right. it's not like we have the whole continental U.S. protected. And I don't have the exact numbers, but the, the actual anti-ICBM ones are relatively few overall. Yeah. 
um, you know, and that's why they're looking at more local and relatively cost-effective solutions. I mean, I have to assume that this is a uh, a signal to the U.S. vis-a-vis Taiwan, right? The the Chinese have been making a lot of noise about uh, reunifying with Taiwan. Um, Meaning invading Taiwan. Right. <laughs> yeah, correct. I'm sorry. Uh, for those of you who don't speak um, uh, that particular language, yeah. Uh, it, meaning invading Taiwan and, and returning, quote-unquote, returning them to uh, Chinese occupying rule. A right, right. Occupying a foreign country. Right, occupying a foreign country. And they have, you know, the it's always been, I think, sort of assumed that this was a red line for the U.S. Um, and they have always uh, positioned their military capability for the eventuality that they would retake Taiwan mm-hmm. or that they would take Taiwan. And so this, I mean, I think is absolutely signaling to us that they are absolutely prepared to go to the mattresses all the way uh, over Taiwan if we dare intervene. Is that true or not? I don't know. Uh, I suspect it is. Um, I think that they are absolutely committed to this project. Uh, I think that if you look at, you know, the current the the current leadership in in China, they have been promising this to their to their populace for a long time, and um, they have a number of other challenges in in China right now, including uh, food resources and, and and some other things. So that the, the timing on this may be beneficial to them from an internal perspective to finally del- to a finally deliver on this uh, promise. And then B to distract their internal population from some challenges that they have. They, it's all. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that the this current regime in China fully believes that they are the world superpower that they should be, and that they will dis dislodge the United States as the global leader, and that that's a matter of time, and that they are superior in every other way. Um, and they've been taking steps since the '90s to be able to do that. They would be if they if. Retaking Taiwan is something they're going to do regardless. They would be stupid not to do it under Biden, right? Here's the thing. Uh, they, yes, that, that is their goal. That is their central goal. It's a keystone to the to strategically to the region um, as far as trade and and of course uh, politically and symbolically. But here's the thing. Wait, they, can we explain why Taiwan is strategically important to the U.S.? Yeah. Taiwan occupies the central uh, link in the first island chain. It's called, which is the first. Uh, uh, sprawl of islands off the Chinese coast, which runs down from Japan all the way down to basically uh, the Philippines. And it's the first um, line of defense against China's encroachment on uh, the Pacific. It's also where there's a massive amount of trade via shipping. Um, Japan, for example, if Taiwan was taken, the air cover that China would gain uh, for its military uh, alone would cripple the Japanese economy, which is why recently Japan stated that if Taiwan is invaded, they will uh, be involved in, in a war. And that was an important thing that happened uh, in the last month. Um, so for China also, yeah, it, it's the it's the historical um, you know residue of their uh, communist takeover that these nationalists went off on this little island and there's this little you know needle in their side that still exists. And also for those practical reasons of breaking that first island chain um, uh, that allows uh, economic flow through as well as navigation for the United States and its allies as well. I mean, another thing to keep in mind for the U.S. is that Taiwan is the primary producer of microchips uh, that the U.S. can use. Otherwise, your choice is China. 
course, the problem with that is China backdoors most of their microchips, so you, you can't really comf- be, be comfortable of, of your security if you have your computer hardware built with Chinese chips. So we go with Taiwan. Uh, so they could essentially, by, re- uh, by taking Taiwan, you know, neutralize America's ability to produce anything with a microchip. Uh, we are already seeing problems with uh, American car manufacturers being unable to put out new cars at appropriate uh, speed because they can't get enough microchips for the vehicles. So uh, the level of economic hurt that the Chinese could put on us if they took Taiwan is, is really, really remarkable. That's an important you know, niche product, but then that affects so many different things. But then you know, when you zoom out, the symbolic, it's the ultimate symbolic victory. And, when we, and we've, we talked about... Um, you know, an army being psychologically prepared and that being the morale being an absolute key. If Taiwan falls, all of the regional other regional players are going to wobble hard because they're, they're going to show. Well, number one, they're, they're going to show whether we whether the U.S. gets uh, uh, whether we get fully invested or not, we will have lost and we will have failed to defend. So our, our, our credibility with our other allies will, will be shot. And um, they, they will they'll make their own separate piece with China or, you know, some accommodation. You talked about it would be a symbolic victory. I mean, the International Olympic Committee would not like us calling Taiwan Taiwan because they refer to them as Chinese Taipei, the entire Olympics, which no. China has insisted since like the 70s or whatever. So that would that just shows how China is constantly trying to undermine did, Taiwan. Did you guys see that uh, the Chinese media had to include Taiwan and Hong Kong uh, medal totals? Uh, in order, to, in order to try to claim that they got more medals oh, wow. than the United States, and we oh, still kicked their butt and everything. <laughs> that's hilarious. I'm actually surprised. I, th- I thought they would bow the other way and just stick to their guns and, and lose they didn't and ex- lose. Pretend they didn't exist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but how long until they say that they're not going to allow Hong Kong to compete, uh, or they're not going to allow uh, Taiwan to compete at all? Uh, I mean, sure. these things are sure. these things are symbolic, but they they do matter. No, and and China has proven that it has a great capacity to affect international organizations. Let's look at the WHO <laughs> during mm-hmm. the pandemic and the fact that they infiltrated that without anyone really thinking about it. Or clearly, it's an important thing, but other nations were not prioritizing having influence there. Clearly, and and China thinks like that. So yeah, the inter, the International Olympic Committee or whatever, you know, I'm sure they. Have plans there? Paragons of anti-corruption that <laughs> right. they are. That yeah, they are. Kidding. Sure. <laughs> and the Olympics are going to be in Beijing next time. Oh, right. Oh, no, yeah. So they, they will really decide who gets to play. Which also yeah. says a lot because it was in Beijing in 2008. And then it's yes. going back. The, yeah, the Winter Olympics will be there in Beijing. But back to the, 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 the silos. Uh, you know, it's like the... Um, it's a strange mix of where, you know, China... Uh, will be is a great power and feels like it wants to be the dominant power but it still has to sort of operate on the asymmetric level so i think like any country that has nuclear weapons it never wants to use them right so it'll be another layer of its um again psychological psychological operations against taiwan it wants to win that without having to land there's 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 questions about whether they'd be successful in a seaborne invasion as far as their assets or in sustaining it and holding the ground so they'd much rather just demoralize Taiwan and make it turn against its own leadership and intimidate its neighbors and gray zone war- warfare is what they call it. Right. And I think there's something. So during the Cold War, you know, Reagan was the first president to have the audacity to call the Soviets an evil empire, which is a regime that killed 100 million people. Um, and their strategy was to get rid of the Soviet Union. 
Right. And it didn't take that much because it was actually, it was at the time people feared it and seemed it seemed indestructible, but it was incredibly weak. And I have to imagine that China is also weak based because communism doesn't ever work, even though it's a bit of a hybrid. It's a little different because I would say the Soviet Union was a weird patchwork of ethnicities and it was unstable to begin with. And, you know, and it wasn't as economically vibrant as it. They always lied about their economic stats. Well, China does, too. But anyway, but China is a little different. You can't just say we're going to make it like disappear because it is, a, I think, a cohesive ethno uh nationalist uh tradition well i mean they do have their ethnic minorities too although they are working rather hard to change (laughs) they they are but it is a little different because because han chinese i think you know is about 90 percent. yeah yeah it it is genuinely a dominant um i'm not saying we should get rid of china what i am saying though is the regime (laughs) yeah (laughs) what i have to (laughs) what i'm saying is that when we stand up to totalitarian regimes they're often way weaker than we think oh yeah and it's a lot of uh, smoke and mirrors and when we're dumb enough to capitulate to it it never works out well but it doesn't take as much as we think it will to overcome and you also have to be smart too about how you approach because uh, you're talking about their weaknesses right uh, going head to head with the Russians in the fold of gap was never the way to beat right. the Soviet Union right because uh, <laughs> they yeah. they were just going to send an awful lot of tanks yeah. and and we were going to lose Um but, you know, then that would be a tripwire, which would then lead to other uh, events. Right. But uh, what did Reagan do? He said, no, they're where they're weak is economically, you know. Yeah. And so I think we do have to look at, you know, competition with the with the Chinese communists uh, in, in, in creative ways to say, how right. can we how can we make things harder on them? Stop giving them our technology for sure. and, and allowing us to buy it back. But all those points good, but 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 they are more formidable because they are more integrated into our economy. For, yeah. you know, and thank you, and, Henry Kissinger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, um, they do have real. They are very brittle. The two, you know, one major point being their demographics, which in a decade or two are going to start to decline, and they're going to have the same Europe problems as Europe with retirees, etc. And they have the top-down economy, which never is is efficient. But the problem is it's timing because. As Morgan pointed out, we're in a really vulnerable window right here where mm-hmm. we have a very weak administration in the U.S. where our guard is down, where they're sort of maybe even peaking with their military and economy. This might be their chance, and they you know, might go for Taiwan. Or- I was trying to end on a positive note. <laughs> like, we might be, it might not be as bad as we think, but right, you brought right. it right back down. Yeah. <laughs> well, this was a great conversation to get off of COVID. I don't think we've talked about that much. Well, I guess on the immigration thing, but... I, I mean, I think that we did raise a, a lot of really interesting points, but the one that really stuck with me was the one, and I think it was Matt, you said, you know, you have to take care of your, you do have to take care of your own country first if you want to be able to project power, right. if you want to be in great power competition with very serious regimes like the Chinese. Uh, you have to be very clear-eyed about yeah. what your national interests are. You have to be... Uh, a unifying presence with your people, not a divisive presence. Uh, I think the Biden administration is failing on a lot of those challenges right now. Uh, and I haven't seen a whole lot of evidence that they are going to, to recognize that. Uh, but it may, we may see a situation where, you know, China has to, China does something and the Biden administration has to very seriously uh, re-examine their priorities. Thank you for listening to today's show. Not Cleared is a project of the Center for Security Policy. We want to hear from you, so please email us at questions at notcleared.org. 
so we can get in touch with you. 